love to pray for Tim before he speaks to us. Almighty Father, I just want to uh, stop now and I just want to say thank you so much for Tim um, and also for Bronwyn too and especially just want to thank you uh, for this couple who have been friends and mentors to Brad and Roche for so many years and just thank you especially for the support that they're giving them at the moment um, as Brad's getting back on his feet um, as we look forward to having him back with us. Uh, but now I just want to say thanks to, uh, for Tim and the way that you've just shaped his mind and his heart and his ministry. And so as he speaks to us now, we just want to pray, would you just give him special clarity of mind, help him to say just the words that you want him to say, and would you just please help him as he opens up uh, your word to us. Would you shape us, challenge us, comfort us, and make us more and more into the people that you want us to be? So would you use him? for your glory and for our strength this morning. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to be with you. Uh, some of you may not know, but uh, I stepped down as pastor of Auckland Bible Church in February of this year. So this is the first sermon that I've preached since not being a pastor. Um, uh, so I pastored for 11 years at ABC, was on eldership for over 20 years, uh, Bronwyn and I and our family have moved down to Tauranga, uh, working for the Christian Education Trust down there. Those of you who know Tauranga, uh, Bethlehem College, Bethlehem Tertiary Institute, and a whole lot of preschools, um, the, the Christian Education Trust sort of oversees all, all of that. And my role is as general manager of this, of this Christian Education Trust. So it's a totally different type of role. It's been a steep learning curve for the last six months, I can tell you. Uh, but it's very special to come back, I guess, to preach a, a first sermon after stepping down as a pastor, and if it's not at Auckland Bible Church, it's with you wonderful folks. So I just want to thank you on behalf of Bronwyn as well for inviting us here. It's a privilege to be with you guys today. I want to talk today about uh, the problem of guilt, and let me uh, give you a what it doesn't look like, this problem of guilt, at, at a low level. Uh, I was in Wellington a couple of weeks ago in a business meeting, and uh, I parked the car, and I knew I had about a 90-minute meeting so I just clicked it over for two hours on the parking meter and paid for that. And the meeting went on and on and on, and I'm looking at my watch, and I'm looking at you know, the two-hour mark, and I'm, I'm feeling more and more guilty all the time. Well, I'm going to come back and find that car towed away. And luckily I got back and it wasn't towed away, but we all know what it's like to feel low levels of guilt. But uh, here is something I saw in Sideswipe talking about parking. I'll get someone to put it up on the screen. There it is. Now... Let me tell you a little trick someone played on me this morning. You can read that, but I can't read that screen there, so I'm going to watch it with you. So that was on Sideswipe, and there's a yellow line in the, on the parking space, but then obviously there's white lines as well. So the person who sent it in said, uh, when it comes to parking, which has precedence? Which is a good question. And I guess if you parked in it, you'd feel guilty the whole time that you're parking there as well. I want to talk to you about much more high-level guilt than just a parking spot. Uh, as a pastor and as an elder, and even now working for the Christian Education Trust, I have people come and talk to, talk to me about issues that they have in their lives. Uh, depression and guilt and anxiety and marital issues, a lot of these things have been discussed with me over the years as a pastor. And one of the things I found profound underneath a lot of this is real depth of guilt. That mistakes that we have made in our lives, that people have made in their lives, in their marriages, in their relationships, with their money, 
uh, even pornography today, a whole lot of areas, there's a real level of guilt that hovers over the church and I think over many Christian people. And I want to talk about that today. I want to really ask this question. Can we deal with this problem of guilt that we all face? And if so, how do we deal with the problem of guilt that we face? Psalm 51 is a psalm that's written by King David. And it's probably one of the classic guilt passages in the whole of the Bible. So I want to read that with you. And then I want to explore Psalm 51 and learn what it tells us about guilt and how we can move on from guilt like King David shows us in this incredible psalm. So let's start at Psalm 51. I'll put it on the screen for you, starting from verse 1. David writes this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar. I want to look at four aspects of this problem of guilt today. I want to look at the background to the psalm that David writes it. I want to look at how David overcame the problem of guilt in his life. Then I want to look at us and how we can overcome this, this issue of guilt. And then at the end, talk about how we know it will work in our lives today. So let me start with the background. And, and if, you, if you know the psalm, at the start of the psalm, it says this. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So let me give you the, um, the background to this incredible psalm that we've just read that King David wrote. Uh, you can read all about this, by the way, in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, uh, we, we read the story of David and Bathsheba, which is a famous story that we all know. But let me sort of summarize it for you. Uh, David, when he was a young man growing up, he was so popular amongst some people that uh, Saul and others were jealous of David. And so David had 37 mighty men that he would use to help him fight the wars that he was battling. One of those mighty men was a man called Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah was married to this woman Bathsheba that we're going to come across in a minute. 
And so the story goes in 2 Samuel 11 that, that one of these wars is going on and Uriah the Hittite is one of these mighty men out with Joab, the commander of the army. And they're out there fighting the battle at the, at the battlefront and David is in his palace in Jerusalem. And he looks over, the, he goes up on the roof and he looks over and he sees this beautiful woman Bathsheba bathing on another rooftop. And so he says, he calls the Bathsheba, they come together, long story short, Bathsheba gets pregnant. And David sends Bathsheba back, pregnant, having this affair with Uriah the Hittite's wife. So David's got a massive problem. David has a big issue that he now has to resolve. And so he, he thinks it through. And so what he does is he calls out to Joab, the commander of his army. He sends a message to him. And he said, bring Uriah back from the battlefront. Uriah comes back under the auspices of getting the news of what's going on on the battlefront. So here comes Uriah the Hittite back. David pretends that he's fascinated in the battlefront news. And then when Uriah has told him all the news, he tells him to go home to his wife for the night. Because he figures if they get together, the pregnancy, everyone will think it's Uriah's. So what happens then? But, and we're meant to see in this incredible story that the, the, the sinfulness of David and the goodness of Uriah in the story, Uriah says, I'm not going to go back and be with Bathsheba, my wife, tonight. Why should I do that when my friends and the men are fighting on the battlefront? So he goes and he sleeps with the servants outside the palace door. David hears about this and thinks, well, this isn't working. So he brings them back in the next day, and this time he gets them drunk. And it says in 2 Samuel 11:13, at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat, this is again, by the way, among his master's servants. He did not go home. So David's got this massive problem now because uh, Uriah hasn't gone back to be with Bathsheba and so Uriah gets sent back to the battlefront. And here's what David tells Joab what to do. He says, Joab, Uriah the Hittite, I want you to put on the front line of the battle. Put him where all the action is. Joab does as what he's told. Long story short, uh, Uriah gets killed at the front line as David hoped that he would. A messenger comes back to David in Jerusalem to tell him the news of Uriah's death. And here is what, after the news has been told, he says in 2 Samuel eleven twenty-five, he says this. This is David to the messenger. He told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. David thinks he's got home clear on this. He thinks no one knows what's going on. But as a prophet called Nathan... And David, uh, God talks to Nathan, and Nathan the prophet comes to David. And he says, King David, we've got a bit of a problem in your kingdom. He says, let me tell you a story. He said, David, there once was a rich man and a very poor man. And the rich man had a whole lot of cattle and sheep and oxen and was very well off. And a poor man had one little lamb. That's all that this poor man had. And he loved this little lamb. This lamb came and ate from his plate. This lamb slept with this man. He loved this lamb so much. One day a visitor was coming to town, Nathan tells David. And he comes and the rich man decides to put on and feed this, this man and show him hospitality. But what does the rich man do, Nathan tells David? He says he goes to the poor man and he takes his one lamb and he slaughters that lamb instead of taking it from all his richness. And he kills the lamb, and that's the lamb that feeds the, the visitor for his hospitality that evening. And, and Nathan gets through telling David that story and says, David, what shall we do at what the story I've just told you? 
And here is what David, not yet realising he's been tricked, says to Nathan. He says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, Surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, and here's the climax of the story, David, you are the man. Now let that linger for a minute. Suddenly David has been exposed. You are the man. Nathan is showing him what's gone on with Bathsheba and David finally gets what he has done himself. And at that moment in David's life, there is a mirror held up to his life. And he has a spiritual and emotional dungeon experience. The depth of his guilt suddenly hits him as Nathan tells him that. And he writes Psalm 51. And that's the background to this incredible psalm that we've just read. And so I want you to see, knowing the background, how this deals, how, how David deals with this guilt and the shame, and how you and I can get out of the dungeon of guilt and shame that maybe we feel from time to time in our lives as well. How does David overcome it? Let me show you two things that David does, and then we can learn from what he does also. First of all, David realises he is more sinful than he can ever imagine. Here is what David does, and I'm going to show you in a minute in the psalm how he does it. But David acknowledges his problem as one word, and his sin. He doesn't go back and say, well, it's because of my family upbringing that I did it. He doesn't go back and say, it's because of social conditioning that I experienced I did it. He doesn't go back and say, well, I had a bad teacher at school, and that teacher impacted me, and that's why I did it. David realises he is more sinful than he can ever imagine. And before he can deal with this problem of guilt in his life, he has to acknowledge his sin. Now let me ask you, and we've read the story and we've read the background, let me ask you what the purpose of the story is. And I'm going to show it to you in a different way. All of the ancient stories, all the great leaders in David's time, if you go back and look at the the literature in the, around 1000 BC and further on, you look at the great leaders of those times, whether they're Greek or Romans or the Norse or the Germanic a bit later on. All of these leaders, they are built up and they are great heroes. They are lifted up in literature whenever you read about them. Not with the Bible. The Bible rubs dirt in David's face. Incredible detail of where he went wrong with Bathsheba. Incredible example of premeditation that David did when you read 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Incredible hard heart that David is portrayed as having. And so when we read, when the Bible says Nathan confronting him and saying, you are the man, David is treated like so many biblical leaders. Peter, Abraham, Moses, everyone. They are treated differently than the Germanic and the Greek and the Roman leaders of their day. Why? Why does the Bible do that? Why does it stand out from all other literature? Because the Bible is trying to show us that you and I, friends, are sinful as well. What it is saying is don't look at David and think how much worse he is than you and I. What the Bible is saying is look at David. He had it all. He was the king. And yet if he was capable of doing such sin, 
Here's what the Bible's question is to you and I. Friend, you don't think you're capable of doing it also? That's the point of what the Bible gets across with these great leaders. And David comes and he realizes in verse 5 the depth of his sin when he says, Surely I was sinful at birth. And this is where he starts moving from the dungeons of despair of the guilt that he's feeling in his life. It's interesting to me, the mayoral elections going all around the country. We live in Tauranga now, and there's going to be uh, uh, many people are putting their names forward to take on the mayor of Tauranga. But in Auckland, if you haven't caught up, uh, Phil Goff is the incumbent, obviously, uh, but John Tamahiri is standing against him. And I read Christine Fletcher, who I think was an ex-mayor of Auckland, but certainly she um, is currently a councillor with Auckland City, was writing an article that I read this week of why she will... Uh, why she supports John Tamahiri and what Phil Goff has not got done and everything that he's gone wrong. And I read that with interest and then I listened on Friday, Kate Hawkesby on the radio was saying why she is um, not supporting Phil Goff or John Tamahiri and all the things that they did wrong. And I was listening to all this debate, you're about to start hearing, uh, those of you getting ready to vote in the elections, but here's the thing that all politicians miss, whether local government or whether central government. Our problems in our cities, in our country, is not so much economic, although there are economic issues. Not so much political, although there are those as well. Not so much sociological, although they exist as well. Our biggest problem is theological. Our biggest problem is that in this country we are sinful. And no politician can come in and fix that problem. And David is acknowledging his sin... And David is saying, sin is malignant even in the very best people just like me. In verse 3, he even goes further and he says, For my transgressions and my sin is always before me. I love what Eugene Peterson, he does it in the message translation, and he says that verse 3 of Psalm 51, he puts it differently. He says, my sins are staring me down. As if I'm collapsed on the floor and my sin is staring me down, hovering over the top. And friends, we need to see the extent of our sinfulness before we can begin healing the guilt. David breaks out from the dungeon of despair, but he starts by doing and seeing how sinful he is. But then he does something else. He does something wonderfully. He knows not only is he more sinful than he can ever imagine, but he knows he is more loved than he could ever have dreamed. Now here's what David doesn't do as you read the psalm. He doesn't say, God, just give me one more chance. He doesn't ask for one more chance. He says, God, I need a new heart. He says in verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God. Now why can he say that? Why can he ask God to create in him a pure heart? Because of verse 1. He starts the whole psalm, have mercy on me according to your, according to your unfailing love. The rest of the psalm is based on knowing that God has unfailing love, even for David in the situation with Bathsheba. And in verse 10, because of that basis, according to that basis, he says, Lord, create in me a pure heart. He's doing what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Create in me a new heart. And here is the difference between a religious person and a Christian. 
A religious person says, gets down on their knees, his knee, her knee, and says, just give me one more chance. I won't stuff this up again. Give me one more chance, God. A Christian knows one more chance won't help. They will make mistakes again. They need a new heart. They need a pure heart. They need God to come and supernaturally into their heart and change them from the inside out. And David claims that promise based on verse 1, according to your unfailing love, God, will you do that in my life? That is what he does. Third point, background, how David overcame it. How can we overcome this guilt that so many of us feel in our lives today? The answer is the same way as David. The answer is, first of all, to acknowledge we are sinful and confess our sins. 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So confess our sins, but then secondly, let this unfailing love of Psalm 51 that permeates all through Scripture, let this unfailing love melt our hearts from the inside out and then say, because of that love that I see, I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want to be doing these things that I feel guilty about. Let me illustrate that in a different way. There was a wonderful movie that came out in the 1990s. It's called The Fisher King, and it had Robin Williams in it. And there's a whole story based around The Fisher King, but there's a particular scene that I watched this this week that I think wonderfully illustrates this, this issue of God's unfailing love. Uh, Robin Williams is on a date. He goes on this date with this, with this lady, with this girl. And he's, he's on the date with the lady, and uh, the date goes fantastically well. It's a wonderful date. And he's walking her home like this, and they get to her door, and he says, what a fantastic date that has been. And she turns to him. She says, yes, it was a wonderful date, but I don't want to see you again. And he said, well, why don't you want to see me again? Because I'd love to see you again. And she says, I don't want to see you again because I know exactly what's going to happen from here. As you get to know me, you won't like me. I'm different. I'm quirky. I'm strange. When you get to know the real me, you won't want to go on more dates with me. And she walks up her stairs to go. And Robin Williams runs after her in the scene, chases after her, and says, stop, stop, stop. And she looks at him, and he says, but what you don't know is I do know you. I've been watching you from afar for many, many months. I know when you leave work. I know you hate your job. I know you're quirky. I know you're different. I know everything about you because I have been studying you. And I want you to know I love you anyway. And silence in her is just the same as silence in this room. And she starts to cry. And you can see in the movie, it melts her heart. And she says, really? You would want to love me despite everything you know wrong with me? And he says, yes, I love you, he says in the movie. It's a wonderful scene. And I thought of that scene. And I want that truth to get through from, from Psalm 51 into our hearts today. God is saying to every single one of you in this room today, I know you. 
I know the things you don't want anybody else to see. I know the things that you are ashamed about and feel guilty about. I know it all. But I want you to know my love for you is unfailing. And friends, when that gets into your hearts, it melts you from the inside out. And you say, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to treat my husband or wife like this anymore. I don't want to allow myself to look at those images on the screen anymore. I don't want to treat my employer like this. I don't want to spend my money like this anymore. It comes and it melts your heart from the inside out. And as it does so, it starts to remove the guilt that so destroys us as we live our lives. Background, all from 2 Samuel 11 and 12. How David overcomes it, how we can overcome it. Last point I want to talk about then is how can we know that it works? How do we know that David got the mercy he asked for in verse 1? How does he know that God's unfailing love comes through for him? Let me fast track you forward a thousand years. Matthew writes the first book of the New Testament. And Matthew records for us, if you like, the family tree of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. And it's like a CV of Jesus. It's a pedigree of this Messiah, as Matthew records it in chapter 1. And there was one incredible verse that David records that tells us, that, David, that Matthew records, that tells us that David got this mercy in verse 1 that he's asking for and we're seeing on the screen now. Here it is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. Here's the bloodline of Jesus. And Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. What is God showing you in that verse? God is showing you and I that sin is stubborn. Oh my goodness, sin is stubborn. But God's grace for you and I is even more stubborn. And God decided to show us that grace through bringing through this calamity with David and Bathsheba, 1000 BC, brings it through his son Solomon, the boy born to Bathsheba, brings it through the family lines all the way through to the birth of the Messiah. David got the new heart because of the unfailing love. You and I can get the new heart too. Let me finish with, a, with an application uh, that maybe will help us as we pray about this and take this message away. Uh, late last year, um, I downloaded the BP app, you know, the um, petrol app that you put on your iPhone? I unloaded the BP app. And on it, you record uh, your credit card details and everything, and then what you're meant to do, you're meant to be able to go to the petrol station. I know half of you do this, and you're well ahead of me. You go to the petrol station... And you fill up with gas, it asks you what pump number, you fill it up, and then uh, it, it, you don't have to go in. You don't have to go in and pay for it. It all happens automatically on your iPhone and gets charged to your credit card. So it's early one morning, I thought, all right, Tim, now's the time to try your new BP app. And I went into the BP station. It just so happened that right there was a policeman parking, filling up his car as well. But I thought, okay, here we go. And I, I went out, filled it up with gas, used the app, that everything was acquired. And then at the end it came up and it simply said one word. It said paid. And I looked at it, and I looked at it, and I looked at it, and I drove off. And I've got to tell you, I felt incredibly guilty. I didn't believe it. 
For 40 years, I've been walking into a petrol station to pay. And as I'm driving off, I'm seeing the headline, pastor loses his job over $47 of gas. Because the policeman, I thought, came out after me. I thought, the flashing lights, you know. I didn't believe what it said on the screen. It said paid. Friend, do you believe what's in the Bible today? It says one word for the mistakes that you've made. If you confess them to Jesus, it says one word, paid. Get that from your head to your heart and it will transform your life. And then allow this unconditional love. Look at it, gaze at it, understand it. Let it come into your heart and say, no more of these things that I've been doing and am still doing to feed this guilt in my life. I will not do it anymore. That's how David did it. He knew he was more sinful than he could ever have imagined, but more loved than he could ever have dreamed. That is how you and I can overcome this guilt in our lives now. Come to this God. Come to this God according to his unfailing love and let it change your life. Let me pray for us. Father, all of us in this room, if a video clip was played of our lives, would be ashamed and feel guilty at certain things we have done. We're no different than King David. And we all have Bathshebas in our lives that we're ashamed about. Father, firstly, help us to acknowledge we are sinful and bring our sin to you. And then may your unconditional love melt our hearts transform us from the inside out and may we turn and re-look at you and live lives worthy of this love so that we walk away from those things that are so sinful in our lives thank you for your grace thank you that your grace is more stubborn than our sin thank you for Matthew 1 chapter 6 proving that to us help us to go from here and rejoice in that truth today we pray Amen.